Hello, and welcome to the Raising Athletes podcast. My name is Kirsten Jones. I'm a peak performance and sports parenting coach. Susie Walton and I started this podcast about four years ago now because we also not only raised athletes, but now she's a grandmother of athletes as well. And seeing our own kids go through the changes that and things that we never had to go through as athletes has been mind boggling. Um, and actually super exciting news. I'm getting ready to launch this baby. It's coming out in a couple of weeks, the Raising Empowered Athletes, for those of you who are just listening and not watching. But today I have a wonderful guest who is completely simpatico with what we talk about all the time, which is the mental side of sports. So Megan Henry, a mental performance coach and pro athlete, welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. I know we have really similar <laughs> interests and purposes and just dealing with like the self-talk and power of the subconscious mind. So I'm super stoked to be on your show. Yay. Um, good. Because this is exactly what I want to, I love <laughs> learning from other people about how they tackle it. Of course, I have my strategies. And so it's always fun to go in new and different directions. So let, let's start with at the beginning, maybe you can talk about, we'll, we'll get to everything you've accomplished, which is a list the length of my arm, which is amazing. But let's start <laughs> with how, um, you know, how, tell me about your childhood and what sports you played and kind of how you got to, to the levels that you are at today. Sure. So it, it's really interesting when I tell people that I was a very shy child. I was very, very shy, very introverted. Even today, I would probably refer to myself as a extroverted introvert. <laughs> and I, I'm um, with you. I'm the same. So yeah, I, I hear you. So, uh, but my father was very athletic. And so, um, you know, it, the nature and nurture argument certainly comes up as to why I got into athletic sports. But um, or athletic endeavors, but my father encouraged me. That's where I got my athleticism from the pure physical talent. And, um, but when I was very young, I really didn't do that much. That was in a serious manner. You know, I was like, okay, I played softball. I did swimming and, you know, I'll dabbled in a little bit of everything. And, um, but my father definitely was encouraging both to myself and I have an older brother to participate in sports. And uh, I think it was great because it there's so many skills that come from being an athlete that you learn, you know, you learn self-discipline, you learn resiliency and overcoming and success and teamwork. There's so many awesome things that uh, children or even adults develop with their participation in sports. And um, my father just, again, he just really encouraged me to uh, go into track and field when I was a in middle school, because that was one of his his sports. And uh, then my mother signed me up for a field hockey camp when I was in middle school. So that was my first like introduction to my first athletic love was actually in middle school. So um, I know some some kids start to even like specialize really young, but I think it's important to to have a broad participation in sports before they start to specialize, just because you learn a lot, even just for, through motor skills and coordination. But um, so I played field hockey, uh, middle school, high school, and in college. So I, I pursued that seriously. Um, my two main sports, again, were field hockey and track and field. And uh, I knew- What school? where did you play um, in college? Uh, American University in Washington, D.C. Yep. And- I um, I knew pretty early on that I wanted to play field hockey in a serious way. I, you know, 
did all of the things that that we do <laughs> go go to camps and participate on different teams and just developing that skill and um i was really i knew like intrinsically not just like from my parents i knew and really had pushed that 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 was a goal of mine and um my parents were obviously very supportive and so i played field hockey at american university and i walked onto the track team my senior year i so i played field hockey four years because at division one level it's quite the commitment it's basically a year-round event no matter what sport you're in at that level and so my senior year i was like i'm not quite done competing so i'm just gonna walk onto the track team (laughs) and um so that's that's like my i guess my childhood and into college uh experience with sports what events in the track and field did you do? I am a short, explosive person. So I did all short sprinting events. Uh, the longest event that I ran was 200 meters. <laughs> That's what I would expect. I was going to say, it's got to be a precursor to why you would then c- convert over to skeleton. So let's yeah. talk about that transition, <laughs> right? So you go, you finish college and I, I feel like, and I've had people on the podcast to talk about this, like when I graduated from William and Mary and then finished playing volleyball for the first time, my joke is I wasn't being recruited for anything, any, and, and go back to kindergarten and red Rover, red Rover. Like I was, you know, always being recruited and to get to the end of college and particularly as women, when, as we're experiencing, you know, not as many women, there's not nowhere to go with it. Okay. There's few now pro sports that are now starting to come alive. How, Mm -hmm. what, what did, how did that transition happen for you? And kind of how did you feel as you were exiting college? So I, um, when I was graduating, I was interested at the time in a federal job. So I went, I, I went and like was going to job fairs. Uh, one of the roles was a, like a three-year rotational program with the FBI. And they had told me, you know, you need three to five years work experience and you need a master's degree. And I'm like, why are they at an undergrad job fair then? <laughs> but yeah. so, so I ended up, um, I also had an interest when I was young to join the military. And so I had made it up in my mind that once I graduated and went home, that that was what I was going to look into. Because if I really wanted to pursue this federal job route, then I'm going to need to get a master's degree and I'm going to need work experience. And, you know, I can do that through the military. I had always thought that was an honorable thing to do. Um, a quick side story. I actually signed, uh, I signed up for like under this recruiter's list. They were doing a push-up contest when I was in middle school. And um, in order to participate in the push-up contest, which I really wanted to do because I thought I could win, <laughs> I signed my name on this list and my middle school and high school are, are joined. So they're in the same, like they're on different wings of the same building. And so obviously the recruiters are for high school age students, but I signed this thing. So a recruiter shows up to my house when I was like 12 years old and my father answers the door and is like, uh, what are you doing here? Wait, how many pushups did you do? Oh, uh, I don't remember to be honest with you, but I won. So that's good. <laughs> Enough. This Enough to win. Good. And so that had kind of stuck in my mind that this recruiter came to my house, spent time talking with me, and um, I was impressed by it. And I, I had always had like a pull towards the military because I thought it was this honorable thing that was the mental challenge, the physical challenge. And so when I had graduated, uh, that's what I pursued. So I enlisted in the army 
And it did, it kind of scratched that itch of being like, okay, uh, there's still like this physical thing that I have to train for. Uh, it's mentally challenging. And, um, and that's what I loved about sports as well. And then to top it off, there's still the teamwork, the camaraderie thing. My main sport, field hockey, was a team sport. And so uh, it really, it fulfilled that, that would be missing otherwise. And so um, in that time, when I had first joined, within the first two years of joining, I was recruited to go try bobsled. And so uh, for those who are listening, I am five foot two inches tall. I am like 125 pounds soaking wet. So for me to go and try bobsled uh, was interesting. I was uh, really, really small for bobsled. And um Alana Myers what, Taylor. What height, I, just for people who don't follow, and I can't say that I really know. Like, are they taller or yeah? Just usually, so physical, um, right? like five foot eight, probably for women is, and like okay. I mean, one hundred and fifty, one hundred and seventy, like plus pounds. You yeah. know, they're, they're significantly bigger than me. <laughs> so yeah. I, um, but I wanted to go try it again because it was like, oh my gosh, there's a sport after college. Like, wow, there's I didn't even know that I could still be doing that, and. So I went and tried out and they told me I needed to gain 30 to 50 pounds <laughs> and I was not about to do that. And so um, bobsled and skeleton. So skeleton is also a sliding sport. It's like luge, but head first. And so you essentially are laying on a lunch tray with your chin <laughs> just a couple of inches off of the ice and you're going 80 miles an hour head first. <laughs> so that you was thought like that sounded like fun. I did. I, I I was somewhat of an adrenaline junkie, despite my shy uh, demeanor. I, I loved, love like when I turned 18 years old, I went skydiving and I always loved roller coasters. So I was like, okay, this sounds really cool. And like, I can represent Team USA. Wow, this is amazing. So- And I would assume being lighter on the skeleton is, a, is an advantage because you can- No, it's actually a disadvantage um, okay. because it's it's a gravity sport. The, the heavier you are, the better. And so I was oh. the lightest woman for a long time uh, in skeleton. And so because of that, I had to push a heavier sled. And um, I mean, you have to be, usually in, in the United States, we're a little bit behind when it comes to recruiting. Uh, other countries, they start when kids are like seven years old. And so now we're just trying to start with like a, a broader youth program. But um, for the most part, Bob Sutton Skeleton pulls from collegiate sports. They pull from strong, explosive athletes from a variety of sports. You see a lot of like track and field. For men, it's there's football players. And so anybody who's strong and fast. And um, I have to train? fit that bill. Uh, primarily in Lake Placid, New York, where the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Training Center is. And mm -hmm. so there's only two tracks in the United States in uh, Lake Placid and Park City. That's what I was. I thought you were going to say Park City. My sister lives in Park City. So I've been up to that track and you can ride it, which is yeah. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you can do yeah. it. Yeah, tourist ride. It, it's very yeah. fun. You might be that might be enough for, for you. You take one yeah. ride and be like, you know, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. I did the ropes course. I looked down at the and I'm like, yeah, I'm good. No, we're not doing that. We're kids. We'll stay with the ropes. Keep keep the harnesses on kids. I will yeah, say awesome. I, so I did go and to try bobsled and I am very happy that I made the switch to skeleton because bobsled feels if you're if you're not the pilot if you're a brakeman then 
Yeah. It very much feels like you got thrown into a trash bin and shoved off of a hill and or, or just stuck in a washing machine. So I was happy to switch over to skeleton. <laughs> and what are you guiding with doing the skeleton? So in skeleton, Wait, yeah, you're using your, your body weight. So it's primarily your knees and your shoulders. You can also do look with your head. It's all of it is very, very subtle movements, which was such a difference uh, going in. There was a lot of challenges that I had to adjust to going into skeleton, especially coming from a team sport. And it's like very physical and skeleton is really what got me into the more mental side of performance uh, because mm. it, it's so nuanced and you're, you're going 80 miles an hour, you're experiencing five G's of force in, in the corners. So, uh, and initially you're pushing a heavy sled from a dead stop. So you have to be strong and explosive, do this super explosive movement, a, a maximum effort sprinting to get the sled up to speed, jump onto it, and then be able to get into like a composed relaxed state while reaching speeds that are faster than some people drive their car. <laughs> and you, because you weigh less, had to push a heavier sled. So yes. that right there, right, is a disadvantage. Yes. Like, how much did yep. the sled weigh? So um, the rules had changed uh, at, at some point during my career. However, most recently, my sled was about 38 kilos, which is I don't know what that is in pounds to be honest with you I can do a quick calculation yeah. here <laughs> just just so um let me see so 38 83.6 pounds yeah. so uh from a dead stop that it's I mean yes there is obviously the friction isn't there because you, you are on ice um but it is still it's still a lot of weight and then uh there's a rule also about combined weight so even though um, I had the, a maximum weight sled, there was a rule. So if, let's say you, for example, were able to have a minimum weight sled, then you can be a, max, a higher maximum combined weight than me. So I was pushing a heavier oh. sled, but my still my total combined weight was under what most people's were. So my total combined weight was around like 97 kilograms and the maximum allowed was 102. So that doesn't wow. sound like a lot, but when you're, I mean, when it's a gravity spore and, you know, mass moving over time, and there's yeah. also a difference between if that weight is on you versus your sled, it affects how the sled moves and the steering and all of that. So it's a very nuanced sport for sure. Fascinating. Amazing. So let's talk about, so you're in the military, mm -hmm. you start doing this, and then you also get into weightlifting. Yes. Where does that come in? So, um, <laughs> so in, in bobsled and skeleton, and I mean, numerous sports now use Olympic weightlifting for part of their strength right. and conditioning, right? That's, it's a powerful, it's an explosive movement. So we incorporated that. And so I, um, we were also evaluated on it in, in our combine tests. And so, um, I started to get coaching on it because I obviously that's also a technical thing to do. So I was like, okay, I need to be coached on this so I can do it better and do well on these combine tests. And um, I did fairly well. It was just something that um, I, I maintained over the years. And then when I retired from Skeleton, so I retired last year, I decided that 
again, going back to like feeling like, okay, I'm not being recruited for anything. I don't have anything to train for. Like, what am I doing? I'm going to the gym and yeah, I can train to look good for the first time in a long time, but I'm like, what am I doing? You know? (laughs) So I felt a little bit lost to be honest with you. It was, it's definitely an adjustment, uh, coming from that life. Um, but so I entered a, uh, one, I entered a, like a local weightlifting meet, and then I actually competed in the, uh, NAS, uh, NAS, excuse me, master's national championships in March. And At the uh, ripe old age of, I, I was 30? 35 then I just turned 36 <laughs> before this a couple weeks ago. <laughs> so Oh, yeah. you got a long way to go. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm like, masters, what is this? But I, I won my class. It was a very fun experience. Um, It was great because I, I, well, one, I got to be like reacquainted with actually competing again and then being able to incorporate some of the things that I talk about, right, in mental performance. And that was very, very cool. And I think that that also translates over to to parents. I think that parents, even if they're, you know, you, you don't have to be pursuing something at a national level, but if you have something that you are pursuing, even if it's like a weekend warrior thing, just so you can empathize with what your child, your athlete is going through and having to understand like the emotional reaction to things and the ups and downs, the emotions that go into competing in something. And and working towards something, having a goal, I think that that's so important and really, really valuable for a parent to have their own sort of athletic endeavors, because then you can incorporate the things that they are also using and learning about. You might you might be learning about something at the same time and being able to incorporate it. And so for me, that was super valuable to be able to compete and use the things that I, <laughs> I you know, mentioned to other people and encourage them to use. And you're modeling it too, right? As a parent, if you're modeling, this is how we perform, this is what we do. And it's not about a ribbon or a trophy or getting to the Olympics, but it's about being and staying physically active, right? As we know, kids who drop out of sport by age 13 are much more likely to have anxiety and depression and overwhelm. And, And if you're not active at 23, the chances of you being active the rest of your life, like these are the habits, right? I love you right. know, the point is so well taken in that we, we want to model them being active, regardless of whether you're on a team sport or an individual. And the fact that you did both, what did you enjoy more having played field <laughs> hockey and then go, to go do this individual? thing like talk about that um so in skeleton for example uh it was that it was such an adjustment and in the beginning of of skeleton um and even then has now translated over into weightlifting i was very much of the mindset that like well i train really hard so therefore my results should be really good you know (laughs) and trying to force these results. And uh, I had to really incorporate in the beginning of my career um, and move away from sort of this perfectionist mindset. Like, so in skeleton, if you are um, on video, let's say if you're doing video review and your video looks really nice of your, of your run, um, you could be steering correctly in all of the right places and look like you have a perf- quote unquote perfect run and your time doesn't reflect it. And there's a number of reasons why that is. And it could be that you're forcing a perfect line. Um, any sort of tension that you are holding from outside 
of the sport that you've brought onto your sled will translate into your time. And that's, that's true for all sports. If you're holding tension in your body and you're trying to have a really fluid golf swing, it's, it's unlikely that that's going to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Right. Unless you can compartmentalize or reframe and like get that, you know, the mindset to be shifted into the present moment. Um, and that was kind of what I, I started to endeavor into was the mindfulness portion and being present and detaching from outcome. Like, yes, we have these outcome goals and that's the, the destination of our GPS, but the process goals and our individual performance goals and daily intentions are really what, what make the difference. That's what is going to give us the best chance of having those outcome goals and I think the same is true for, for parents. That's, that's something that you can put into perspective for your, your child athlete of having these process goals versus, you know, well, we need to make this team and I want you to get recruited at this school. And like, those are definitely important, but like, how can you show up today? What's your goal for today? What's most important now? Um, Having that, that perspective shift and, and really, um, that mindfulness portion for me helped me develop a lot of awareness of what I was thinking. Why am I thinking this way? It also helped me shorten my, my like reaction time to things, so to speak. So if I had a bad run, I could rebound much quicker. Um, and so it was, it was an interesting transition from a team sport to an individual sport. And I liken skeleton to having like a similar stressor to yes, like a golfer or an MMA fighter, like something that's very intense. Um, golf isn't very intense, but it's really long and drawn out. It requires so much mental, um, like mental endurance. And in like UFC fighting it's very intense, but you need to remain calm and composed and have like the balance between fight or flight. So I learned so much from competing in skeleton. And that, again, is what kind of segued me into the mindfulness and then ultimately mental performance. I knew before I retired that mental performance would be the next route for me. (laughs) Wonderful. And I want to go deep on that because I think there's going to be some good nuggets for parents who are listening, mostly parents, but occasionally parents put this on in the car where their kids are on the end of the game, which I think is wonderful. Um, So I want to talk about that, but you brought up golf and I watched the masters last weekend and watched Clark this kid, you know, 29 year old kid who finished, okay, yes, he won a couple of weeks ago, but before that finished 75th. So to your point, to get to the largest stage in the largest venue where, you know, he said, I felt my mom all around me and yet never outwardly at least had that, oh crap, I'm on the biggest stage and deep six yourself. And that's mm-hmm. a lot of what I work with athletes on. Right. And I love that you, you know, that that's your go to as well and learning and insight as to how I'm going to get better and not being focused on the outcome, but being focused on the process. And I think as women, a lot of women, when I'm coaching a lot of teen girls, right, this, you know, social media perfectionism, everybody looks perfect, everybody has, you know, more than I have or whatever, and you get caught up in the story, Mm -hmm. and you don't allow yourself to enjoy the moment. So what are, you know, first of all, let's talk about the parents and then then I want to transition to talking about some tips that you might have for athletes, but tell me about, you know, your experience with how has it changed? How are you parented versus what you're seeing versus what's great parenting look like to you for, for these athletes? 
Definitely. And what's so, the ugly underside? so I love my parents very much. I'll preface that. However, we all, <laughs> when, when I was competing, I mean, again, I, I just turned 36 years old. I competed until I was 34. Uh, I was in skeleton from the age of 22 to 34, roughly. So I competed, you know, over a decade. Um, I had missed a year. I had uh, blood clots. I was out for a year and then I came back and I missed one of the years for due to COVID. But in general, I competed for over a decade. And despite that, like I'm still my parents' child, right? No matter what, no matter what age. So um, and my father coming from an athletic background, as well-intentioned as he often was, <laughs> uh, felt the need to coach me. And um, it was very frustrating at times because, because Skeleton is so unique and um, I give him credit. He made really excellent observations for never having seen the sport prior to my participation and never having done it. He did make really good observations. Um, but he tried to coach me and it drove me insane because it was like, well, yes, if it was that easy, then don't you think I would have done that? <laughs> like, well, why don't you just steer at this po point? Why don't you just, you shouldn't have tapped that wall. Like, you don't think I know that, you know? <laughs> and so that sort of, um, again, as well-intentioned as it is, I see that a lot in parents that they're, they want to help and they want to contribute and that, you know, they want to be a part of this journey and they, uh, I can make this observation and make this point and really help them. And it's going to change everything. But the reality is, is that, um, I would, the advice I would give is to leave the coaching to the coaches. And, uh, again, I, I love my father, but it, even at, in my thirties, um, because your children really value you. <laughs> And even though at times they may not, especially if you're raising a teenager, <laughs> their your opinion carries a lot of weight. And that comes from their younger, their formative years as a child. Like they, it's, they really, really value what you have to say. And so for me, um, when my father would do that or get frustrated or sometimes be like, well, you haven't made this team yet. So like, do you really think you should be doing this still? <laughs> um it really, it feels like a dagger because, um, you're, it, it adds a, a, a lot of pressure. It puts a lot of pressure on the situation. And, uh, I remember when my parents came to one of my first races, I absolutely, my, or my dad was like, uh, you look like you didn't run far enough at the start here. And so I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to run really far this next time. So in skeleton, you run and then you load onto a sled, but there's an optimal point. So I ran too far and I pushed slower and, you know, like my dad being super well-intentioned and I ended up not performing well at this race at all. And in the future, I had set the boundaries of like, okay, I really, I'll talk to you after the race. Like, I love you. Thank you. Thanks for coming and supporting me. But I will talk to you when the race is over. And um, so in short, leave the coaching to the coaches. And uh, I think tapping into the feelings of uh, your athlete versus like the, the outcome and accomplishments. And like for me, I, like the athlete knows when they've performed poorly or could have done better. You know, you don't need to point that out, right? They already know this. Mm -hmm. And so your role is to then offer support or, or brainstorm on like, okay, well, 
what can we do better next time? What What's something that we can improve upon? Like, what do you think that is? So allowing them to be the problem solver there, I think is, is really, really huge because you're giving them that autonomy. And when would you recommend this advice come? Is it right after they get off the ice? Is it a day later? Is it a month later? That That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> So no, I wouldn't say immediately after, but I know there's obviously like the ride home from the game or something that <laughs> certainly there, it might feel like this awkwardness. Um, I think just even like offering to hold space for them, like, Hey, I know that you're, you, you might not be feeling so great right now, but like, I'm ready to talk when you are, if you want some support and just doing that. So, uh, you're breaking the tension that you may feel and, uh, allowing them to like sulk for a minute. I, I think that, yeah, when, whenever even like a teammate or a coach or my parents try to console me immediately after having a bad run, I mean, it's like somebody being like, well, you shouldn't be upset right now. Right. <laughs> like, has that ever worked? No. Yeah, um, never. So, right. So I like to tell parents the only six words they need to hear from you are, I love to watch you play. Yes. I love that. That's perfect. Right. And you want to talk about it? Nah. You want to go get ice cream? Yeah. Perfect. You want to talk about it tomorrow? Let me know. Because yeah. I'll be less, because I'm also stressed or, you know, frustrated because the coach didn't do this or you didn't execute that or whatever. And me putting, throwing that into the pot. Like to your point, you're already front, you know what, you know, you didn't do well. So why am I going to jump on that? Like, that's not what they want to hear. And to your earlier point, which is they care so much what we have to say that when we take that moment to, to what feels like jump on their pain, it, it's not helpful. Right. Definitely. I, I love that. I think that, um, even again, no matter what age your athlete is, for a parent to express that, like, I really love watching you perform. And like, even if you didn't win today, I'm so proud of you. Like th those words that that inner child really hears that it goes a long yes. way. So I, I totally, I absolutely love that advice. And it, it's very, very true. Oh. Okay. So we've pivot to the athlete <laughs> and I, this is the good stuff. So, so talking about Tell me, let's talk about some of the work that you do with athletes and what are, you know, like, let's address the, the big one in the room, which is I can't, the, 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 the mental, I call it the mind, the mindset monkey that's in the back of your head saying, I can't, I won't, I shouldn't, it won't happen for me. How do you, what advice do you have for people who athletes who are dealing with that? So the two big things that I love using uh, is have to do with self-talk and affirmations as well as visualization. So um, to answer that, I think that another statement that I use often is to talk to yourself more than you listen, uh, because those thoughts are all normal. Like those, those types of thoughts come up for everybody, whether they're at a championship, a gold medalist, whoever they are. All of that stuff is normal. It's just that they can manage their self-talk better. That's the only difference. Like, and that's true at an elite level for any sport. Everybody's got the physical stuff down, right? They're disciplined. They're dedicated. They've done all the training. Their nutrition's on point. Their sleep's on point. What separates people is their mindset. And mindset is 
what you tell yourself about yourself in short. That's essentially all it is. And so if we can be proactive with that and have some things ready that we've drilled into our mind, um, as well as incorporating the visualization piece. So um, whether that's like a specific competition, visualizing yourself at this competition, um, both I think initially seeing yourself be successful, but also being able to overcome some sort of obstacle. So you know that like, well, I have the ability to do these things. Um, the, that's a way to kind of address that that monkey that you're talking about. And the more that we uh, have that that proactive, positive self-talk that are true statements about ourselves, then we're we're configuring our reticular activating system, which is like that lizard brain of ours, and it helps us filter information. And so again, those negative thoughts and stuff are, are normal. So at first, if you're like, I'm a national champion, your mind initially, and this is, this is true for me, this is true for athletes that I work with, your mind initially is going to present information that counters that. Like, well, no, you're not. You, or you, uh, I make all of my lifts when I, uh, in competition, well, no, you didn't because you failed that lift one at one time. You know, it's going to search for that information. And so we need to be able to compile evidence and sort of like a success um, uh, resume of our own that supports these instances because the, the negatives are so easy to find. That's the, those come up naturally. That's a survival mechanism, right? And so th those come up without effort. And But being proactive and putting in the effort in to be like, to celebrate our wins. That's another thing. Really celebrating our wins and like keeping track of that so that our mind starts to look for those positives and that, um, again, the negatives are going to come up, but can you like reframe them in a way that um, everything is working out for me, for my highest good and it, to go to like a spiritual sense. Um, so for example, I, I did not make the Olympic team in 2022. I was an Olympic alternate. Um, I sat out the year before because I was in the army. The army did not let me compete due to COVID. It was very frustrating. <laughs> and so I was essentially sitting at home, like twiddling my thumbs. I was, I was still physically training off ice, but, and, um, I was watching other people take, take my races. And I was the only woman competing that sat out the season before the Olympics. And so most people aren't going to do that, right? You're not going to sit out the season by choice, <laughs> unless it was an injury um, prior to a really, really important event. You're not going to just lay down and eat potato chips the week before the national championships, <laughs> right? So for me, that it was so easy for that stuff to creep in, those, those doubts and all of that to creep in. Um, and it certainly did. That was partially why I did not make an Olympic team, because I started to shift my attention from me and what I could be doing and focusing on, uh, I had a strong attachment to my past results and what I quote unquote mm -hmm. should be doing. And should is a lot of, that's a pressure language, a lot of pressure there. And um, so I had this attachment that I thought should dictate how my results today should be. And so I was constantly like looking for evidence confirming like, well, uh, I'm doing all these things that I'm doing my affirmations and I'm visualizing like, why are my results not coming? Well, 
having that that detachment and the trust that it's going to happen is so important but ultimately believing that everything is happening for a reason it i mean it it allows you to relax a little bit <laughs> and um so i although it was super bittersweet to not make an olympic team I did firmly believe that because I had told myself that so many times I had, that was an affirmation of mine that I adopted and I was able to um, rebound relatively quickly. There's certainly an emotional process that happens when you have that sort of heartbreak, like that's totally normal, but there's some athletes who don't do that and they have an absolute identity crisis and they don't know who they are. They don't know what their life purpose is. And they really cannot like let go of it. I have teammates from years and years ago that retired from skeleton um, who did not make an Olympic team who will not watch the Olympics to this day. It's been about eight years. They won't even look at it. They won't watch anything having to do with the Olympics. It gives them so much heartbreak. And that's a shame, right? We don't want to carry that sort of stuff. So to be able to have one, the proactive self-talk, but also being able to reframe instances um, and also revise. That's another uh, cool thing that not a lot of people do is like revise their performances. Um, sometimes it's harder to do in the moment, like right after that. So like I advise people to do that before bed. But if you can go through your day and something didn't happen the way you wanted it to or like you missed this shot you can go and revise and be like, this is how I would have liked this to go. And in the future, this is how I'm going to perform and seeing yourself perform well. Um, so to go back, it would be the self-talk, yeah. proactive self-talk and the visualization. Those are really, really huge. So I created a journal because I work with mostly teen athletes and I give each athlete a journal. And I think one of the most powerful tools we have is writing it down. Our brains don't know the difference between us thinking about doing something and us actually having already done it. So just you writing it down, it's 50% of the way there. Definitely. The power of our mind is crazy. And when we convince ourselves we can or we can't, Either way, you're right. We're right. Right. So and writing it down and, and getting it, locking it in is powerful. Do you work with athletes on doing that as well? So definitely. I just started um, incorporating what I call story work. And what is so awesome about writing it down is that you, um, when you've got a thought, whether that's a, a fear or you're replaying something in your mind, like this missed shot or i failed at this attempt or didn't do this. If you're playing this and it allows this rumination to, it has tentacles, right? So it starts to go, it's never ending. And then it goes into like, well, I'm a, a bad student and I'm a bad daughter. It, it just starts, you know, it just is never ending. It starts expanding and cascading everywhere. But when you write something down, just as a journal entry, and you just literally are telling the story of this event, it, one, it creates distance between you and that thing, but also there's a beginning of this story and there's an end to this story. And so it gets it out of your head and onto paper and you're able to process this story more easily. And that's true for even goals that you have. If you can write down the goals that you want and write a story on what that looks like, 
again, your mind, it doesn't know the difference between something that's real and imagined. And the more that you can like tell better stories, that's an, a, another big thing that I love to, to talk about with athletes is like, that's our goal here. We're choosing to tell better stories. And the same thing is true for parents. Like we're telling a better story and, um, whether that's about training, whether that's about stuff having to go out with the family, you know, you can choose to tell a better story and we can also choose the words that we use as well. And there's, uh, I mentioned briefly, like pressure language and um, there's negations and affirmations and negations are basically talking about things that we don't want, all of the negatives, like I don't want to do this. Um, and affirmations is talking about something that we want to do and it's affirmative, it's positive. Um, negations, again, are words that focus on what wasn't, what isn't, what can't be, um, can't, won't, isn't, not, don't, haven't, hasn't, shouldn't, all, all those types of words. Uh, they focus on the mind on something that it's trying to avoid versus an affirmation, again, is something that focuses on what was, what is, what can be. It's, it opens up possibility. If it feels lighter when you, when you use these words, so, cause you're saying I can do this. I, I will, I have, I am, all of those are affirming. They're uplifting. They carry a different energy and they help us focus on the, the imagery and the feelings that we're seeking. Cause ultimately our thoughts, uh, our thoughts create feelings, our feelings then translate into actions and our actions uh, produce results. And our thoughts though, however, like we think in pictures. So if I were to say to you, if I were to mention, can you like, tell me what your car is like, you're not going to think of like, let's say you drive a red Honda. I don't know. What, what kind of car do you drive? <laughs> a Ford Explorer. A, a gray Ford Explorer. Explorer. A gray Ford Explorer. Well, are you thinking of the words gray Ford Explorer written out? Or are you thinking of the picture? Like you're thinking of the picture of the car. And so that like the words that we use and, and the, the visions that we have, uh, they really tie together. They really get mixed together. And that's so important because both of those things, again, they dictate our actions and ultimately how we show up, how we perform. Thoughts become things. Exactly. And when we focus on the positive or focus on the negative. And most of us are wired with a negativity bias, which mm -hmm. means we're going to talk about what could possibly go wrong, but you have an equal chance of things going right. So why not build that muscle and focus on what could possibly go right without being Pollyannish? I think that's the thing people are like, yeah, but that's just me thinking, you know, hoping that I'm going to get a brand new car and it's going to show up in the driveway. I'm not saying you get a <laughs> you know, not mistake and I, and, and the, the gift shows up, but what you do get <laughs> is an opportunity to think about what it is you're creating and then act in accordance on a daily basis. What are the big term goals? But then how am I showing up today? What am I doing today in service of making that Olympic team? I have no control over whether the army is going to allow me to be right. in the Olympics or not. I don't. I have 100% control over what I'm going to do today in this moment to prepare myself for that moment when exactly. it happens. And I yeah. get, it's like, if you think of a seed, okay, like you put a seed in, you pot, in a pot of soil, and as long as you water and nurture that seed appropriately, it's going to grow. And we can choose 
what seed that we're watering, if it's this positive one, if it's this negative one, we have the incredible ability as human beings to choose the story that we are telling. And it absolutely changes how we perceive our world. And it, it changes how we show up, how we execute. And um, I think that's uh, something that I love trying to instill in people. Um, and parents can do this as well. Like, that your children are so powerful, your athletes, you are so powerful. And I think that through throughout the years, and just through things having to do with society, and all of these things, we've, we've kind of forgotten that we have this incredible ability and this innate power within us. And so um, to really like tap into that, because I, I promise you, if you start to look at the words that you're using, the stories that you're telling, and you change them and you focus on the things that you want. Napoleon Hill said the quote, uh, the greatest application of applied faith is learning the art of keeping your mind focused on what it is that you want. And if you do that, I promise that the reflection from your reality will change if you do that. I, I really do. I promise that. And don't stop digging. Don't stop one foot short of where your goal is either, right? Do you remember that story? And yeah. Yeah. How to think and grow rich, right? Um, you remind me earlier talking about visualizing too. Um, an exercise I love to do with clients is called remembering the future. So taking them on a journey of what is your best day? In fact, like with teenage boys, it's actually opening the box of the brand new Nike shoes and smelling them when you get out of bed in the morning and putting them on and what it feels like to walk into the gym and high-fiving every single teammate. And the hoop is 20 feet wide and you can jump as high as you want and you're free and you're having the most fun. And this is the, the, the best thing I could possibly think of is spending my day playing basketball with my best friends. And I did this with my then 13 year old son and the next like a week later, he had to get up and go play soccer in the morning and basketball in the afternoon. Soccer coach couldn't stand him, swore at all the kids, was very negative. He goes to play soccer down in Orange County an hour away. And my husband's texting me. I don't know what's wrong with him. He's running funny. He doesn't look like he wants to be here. I'm like, oh God, this could be a long day. In the afternoon, he's got to go play basketball. He gets in the car. They drive up to LA. He plays a basketball game, comes running in the front door. I had 30 points. I Oh my gosh. Like, I love it. What, what happened between the soccer game and the basketball game? He said, Oh mom, I did that thing. I had dad just put music on in the car and I remembered the future. And I walked into that game. Same kid. Right. Just hours same, apart. <laughs> same day, right. But different, completely different experience based on how he felt about who he was in that moment and how he wanted to show up. That so is powerful. such a good story. Oh my gosh. And kudos to you, mom. That's so good. <clears throat> but that's incredible. Cause it, like, like you said, it was basically hours apart and you can, you can switch your mind like just like that, just by shifting your attention or again, like this story, he's like, Oh, I remember this story and he had visualized that he had seen it in his mind and then he was able to bring it to fruition. And the cool thing about visualizing it, is touch it, smell it, yeah. you know, hear it. What is What does that gym smell like? What is the basketball smell? When we put ourselves in that heightened state, like you said, you can flip your state to where I'm getting on the sled and go time. 
right? And it's that's familiar to you. Yes, that's a muscle that you've been working now 14 years on, or more than that, your whole athletic life to get to this moment where when it's go time, I'm not thinking, I'm allowing. Yes, that's so good. Oh, I love that. <laughs> right? Um, it's, you and I like life is happening not to me. And that's what people, oh, it's not fair. This, you know, the situation and it's, you know, the ice wasn't good or whatever, the wind wasn't good, or you can come up with a hundred different things that are outside of your control. Or you can say, I'm ready for this moment. I've done everything that I need to do to prepare and I'm going to leave it all on the sled. I love that. Um, so like the, the victim mentality, you kind of just touched on that that like, well, the ice wasn't, there's everybody could find all of the excuses in the world. Right. So the, the, the victim mentality, um, I'm doing this certification, it's called the enlifted method. And we talk mm -hmm. a lot about, um, the victim mentality, imposter syndrome, and obviously the power of stories and words. Mm -hmm. And so the victim mentality is an acquired personality trait where a person, uh, tends to regard himself or herself as the victim of the negative actions of others, even in absence of clear evidence. And so we talked a little bit before, like your mind will just come up with this, the negative evidence to support like, oh, well, you aren't this thing that you say you are. <laughs> and it, the, the thing about that, that the victim mentality is that it depends on a habitual thought process. So these things that we've thought about over and over and over again. And so that's really encouraging though, because that means that then confidence is also a personality trait. And that also means that it can be a habitual thought process. So if we choose to water this seed instead, then that one will grow. And, um, you also touched on on fun, the aspect of fun. And I think it, it's, it's crucial to emphasize that the core of any athletic journey is about having fun. That's, that's usually why a kid starts participating in a sport. Um, they like it. They have fun. They've made friends. And that, I mean, sure, there's probably other things like the challenge, all these other things. But initially, like when you boil it down, it has to do with fun. And as parents, another perspective that you can give is to keep that, that joy, that fun alive for your athlete throughout their athletic development, no matter how old they are. Because if the, if the sport stops being enjoyable, then you have to either reassess, you've got to reframe, maybe you, um, you try a new approach or maybe they start pursuing something else. Like maybe they really didn't like, maybe he didn't really like soccer, but he really likes basketball. Right. <laughs> and the, uh, the book that comes to mind is Andre Agassi's book, uh, open. Okay. And he, I mean, it's heartbreaking in a way. Like he reveals that he despised tennis. And, and this is someone who's the, the best tennis player. Right. And he, he, although he had, and he stuck with it because obviously his parents put him in there and all of that. And he had all of the talent, but he had no personal satisfaction or joy. And I think if, if that part is missing, um, it's important that you know that from your child and be having those conversations. Like, are you still having fun? Because do we want to teach our children and our athletes and whomever that, 
well, you need to stick with this thing and just suffer with it. Um, uh, people do that in careers all of the time. Like, well, I'm here and I'm good at this, but I really hate this job and I hate my boss. <laughs> like, well, do we want to set that example too? Like, I, I don't know. I think that the focus definitely should have like that fun aspect, the joy, um, because that is also what allows people to perform better. That's what allows these flow states and to get into the zone is to be really, really immersed in this thing that you love doing. That's where peak performance comes from. It really comes from that fun aspect of it. I actually wrote about Agassi in my book and in, in the opening oh, nice. section, I'm fra I frame up why, why has youth sports got as crazy as it has. And part of, part of like one of the stools, legs of the stool is, is the crazy sports parenting that started in the seventies, like, like Andre Agassi's dad, Mike, who was a boxer from Iran who raised four kids. And when he, when Andre came about, he said, oh, this kid's going to be a pro tennis player. And, you know, he had to go up against the one-eyed monster in the backyard in the Las Vegas heat in July and hit, you know, a million tennis balls because that's what was going to make him the best in the world. And even upon reflection, after he's done, he's made over $250 million in tennis, not to mention all the sponsorships. And when the father was interviewed, he said, so, you know, if you could do it all over again, would you do it differently? He said, oh, absolutely. He said, oh, what would you do differently? Of course, expecting the father to say, I would have never pushed as hard. He said, oh, I would have had him take up golf because you could make a lot more money and you could play for a lot longer. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, and right? I, that, the, the lesson in, in that is that it's, it is your child's journey, right? It, it's not yours. And I think encouraging them to set their own goals, their own aspirations, and let them take ownership of their athletic development. I think, you know, we talked about setting an example, right? And like, because your actions speak louder than words. And if you're role modeling, again, like this healthy lifestyle, you, um, you demonstrate good sportsmanship, and you're not screaming on the sideline. <laughs> and you maintain a positive mental attitude, uh, th those things are all super important. But um, I think they, the autonomy and being a, basically a sounding board for your athlete in their athletic journey that allows them to take ownership. Like, well, if, if this didn't go out, like, what do you think you, you need to be doing to perform better next time? So like, you certainly are still parenting there. You're still giving some input if they ask for it, but they are being the problem solver. They're in charge of their athletic journey. And, um, you know, we could certainly encourage them and be like, well, is, is sleeping till noon on Saturday? Is that in alignment with the things that you want? Like, it, you know, you don't have to yell at them and, and scold them and all of that, but you can ask them and maybe they decide that it is, it is. My, my recovery is important today. I'm prioritizing my recovery. Um, it could be, uh, or I'm prioritizing hanging out with my friends today. And th there's certainly instances where, where that's going to happen. And I think that that's, that's natural. Um, especially like you said, like parents now there's such a push for kids when they're so, so young and like specializing in sport and all of that. And very, very cool, right? There's certainly a tremendous opportunity, um, by, by doing something like that. However, like they are still, they are still kids. They are still growing. Uh, there's things that can be learned either way. And I think allowing them to learn those lessons, whatever they are, like, well, you decided to sleep in today, you, you missed that practice or, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. They, um, the consequences of that. Yeah, yeah. Like 
Yeah. They can learn. And they asking, can learn. Asking good questions. I think your point is well taken, which is if we're talking more than we're listening as a parent, then we're probably doing it wrong. And even if mm. we know the answer and that's, what's hard, like, oh, I've been here before. Oh, I want to let them know. I know the answer. It's no, tough. this is, <laughs> this is not your journey. Yeah. Allowing them to come up with what, where I am in my journey. And PS, we all have to pivot at some point. Even LeBron James, even Tiger Woods, even, you know, everybody, even Serena Williams, everybody's going to have to pivot away from sport. Yeah. So allowing them <laughs> to dictate when that's going to be. And, so, and that's so easy to say, and it's so hard to do. I've got one kid it doing is. it right now. And it, it's, it's not easy. It's not. And, but it's important for us to also, again, sit back and allow and, and be there to support them. So thank you so much, Megan, for being on. This has been, I mean, thank we're you. an hour into it, which usually I do 30 minutes, but like, oh, wow. yeah, I could talk about it. Feels like 20 minutes. <laughs> we're in flow. We're in, we're in group flow yes, here. So we're total group flow. Yes. So I would wish you so much luck and success. And I would love it if you would be sharing yes. this book with your your athletes that you're working with. And I definitely. will definitely share your work and we're excited to, to share you on the pot on the podcast and our platforms. And we're in simpatico around what it, what it's going to take to help these athletes have, make fun, have fun friends and fundamental are the first three things we got to be focused on and get rid of this FOMO. Oh, who cares that they're going to go play in Sweden? They're 10. They don't right. need to go to Sweden to play this summer. <laughs> they need to just have fun, right? And enjoy the process and enjoy the ride. So thank you so much. Where can people find you? Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, primarily social media. I am at the Savage Meglet <laughs> on all social media platforms. Um, that's like the easiest way to get in touch with me because my website's under construction. But um, yeah, give me a follow. If you have any questions, shoot me a DM. And um, yeah, I'd love to support you and your, in your journey or your athlete's journey. And um, I'd love to collaborate with you in the future for sure and provide yes. some value to these athletes. And it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for being on. This is wonderful. And parents, if you know of somebody else raising an athlete, if you would like and share and comment. And I even sometimes throw out my phone number, 503-319-2209. If you have questions for Megan or for me or questions you want asked on a future podcast, please feel free. Send us a text or jump on the website and drop us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for being here. And parents, let's do this.